have many names, but the one I say is the most important. Hello, I am Daisy Mercedes Ramos. I call myself an artist, and I am the vidiot today, all day. I came up with this podcast a few years ago with my friend Faith to talk about something specific, but since it was clear we had different interests in terms of this podcast, I asked her if it was okay for me to claim it. She said yes. Now, of course, I hope to one day bring her on the show and talk about that thing and maybe others in the future, but for right now, it's just me. I call myself a vidiot because I'm an idiot in love with video-based media. Movies, television, short films, documentaries, animation, you name it. I love it so much that I'm currently going to a school of film in hopes to make a career of it one day. But I have been watching video-based media for a long time, and I have a lot to say. I started becoming critical of this media around the time I was 12, with my first hated film being a Disney sequel. Again, I was 12. As the years went on, I learned more and more about how to analyze film, and let's just say my dad wasn't the happiest when I made comments during family movie night. And although I do not intend to be a critic, I do have thoughts on many things that I intend to share. That's what this podcast is here for. As I said, my biggest interest is video media, but my main interest is animation, usually children's animation, but more so the fact that I am a child at heart than anything else. I will be focused on a lot of animated media, and because I'm a nerd, a bit of Precure as well, for those who know what that is. But I do intend to talk more than just that, as I am the vidiot, not the an idiot. And yes, I have scripted this intro, but I intend to speak naturally with a few guides, not a script. Today, I'll be talking about things I have seen recently, in order of what I've seen them. First, early thoughts on the new Haunted Mansion. Then a review on Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, and finally, a review of Nimona. I hope you will all indulge in my videocracy. All right, enough of script reading. Let's get into this thing. So, anybody who's been to the Disney parks with me would know that I like the Haunted Mansion. (laughs) I'm laughing because of the memories I have of that place. I really enjoy it. I love the Haunted Mansion so much that, in fact, uh, the last time I was there, it was Disney World. I went straight into Memento Mori and got myself some ears from the mansion. I don't know where they are right now, but that was my favorite investment. There was this time where where I was allowed to write a piece for this marching band magazine, and I was writing facts about the parks and I didn't go into all the details about the Haunted Mansion because there is just so much but I said that there was almost nine versions of it that is a lie I recounted it's actually closer to over 20 we're almost at 30 if I'm not mistaken there is a lot of story to the Haunted Mansion and there's so much that can be done with it because in a sense, none of it is canon. There's so many different ways to interpret it. When it was announced that they were making another movie of the ride, I was actually kind of excited because it's just like, oh my goodness, where are they going to take this now? And then I see like three trailers of it and I'm just like, wow, that's disappointing. Yeah, uh, let me let me talk about what I like about it first. The Hatbox Ghosts looks really good. And some of the effects looks really good. That's about it. (laughs) I have some notes on the trailer in general that don't make as much sense to me as they should. I've been seeing a lot of praise 
for this new haunted mansion. But I every single time I look at it, I was just like, it's not ringing well with me. And maybe it's because I'm a little bit obsessed with the haunted mansion. Like I know more about the haunted mansion than one reasonably should. But anyway, let's go through the list. So the the human characters by the haunted mansion. And from what I've seen, it was in an auction, which I thought was interesting because um, capitalism, like, they'll probably get away with that, I guess. But there's a do not enter sign in front of the in front of the mansion. When they get there, it looks like it hasn't been used in a very long time. There's nobody cleaning it. There's the lights are not working. And, um, along with that, if the bride is supposed to be Constance Hatchaway, that means a murderer has lived in the house. And, you know, Americans, why would we do that? Why would, why would we buy a house if a murderer lived in there or if somebody died in that house? I don't think it's the Jaws effect, but if you think about it, so many horror movies involve people buying houses where the previous owners have died. So in this day and age, I don't think anybody would be interested in buying a house. Now, of course, it's a mansion, so those people were rich, so who knows what was going through their head when they decided to bid it off, but nobody would do that, I don't think, in this in this day and age. Or maybe it's just me. I don't know. If you guys want to buy a house that has not been cleaned and does not have lighting, does not have electricity, and probably doesn't have plumbing, and also has had several people die in the house the last time somebody was living there I mean sure go ahead I'm I'm not gonna judge your hobbies because I'm not doing that I just I just think it's a little bit weird that we are we are meant to believe that people would still be doing that maybe they were interested in the land I don't understand it It doesn't make sense to me. So I know I praise the effects a little bit, but the ghosts are walking. The ghosts are walking. The ghosts are walking. The the ghosts are walking. The ghosts are walking. (laughs) The ghosts are walking. I I don't know what to say to that. I, I know... I know that they are actors. I know that the ghosts are really human dressed up as ghosts and then added CGI and lighting effects so that they can look more like ghosts. But they're walking. Moving on, again, assuming that the bride is Constance Hatchaway, she's just throwing her axe around. (laughs) It's very clear that the bride is at least based on Constance. It doesn't make sense for me to for her to be chucking her axe maybe this is a nitpick maybe this is a nitpick maybe when constance was committing murder it was very subtle she got away with it and she killed at least five people in one version it was stated by the time she killed her third husband she got it down to a science again it's probably just a nitpick but why is she throwing her axe if she had to be that careful she killed again she killed five people all the same way and she got away with it. People didn't realize that she killed them until after she died. Why is she just chucking her axe around as if she was, like, literally axe crazy? Uh, it probably doesn't make sense to someone who's not that big of a fan, but to me, it's such a genuine problem. Like, Constance wouldn't do that. 
She would seduce you and then stab you in the back. <laughs> the summoning of Leota was a little bit weird because from my understanding of Leota's story, she was obsessed with witchcraft and because of her um, deep connection to it and misuse of it or something along the lines. This isn't canon. This is just my interpretation. She trapped herself inside of her crystal ball and she couldn't leave. And then now we're just summoning her. Where did she go? That's also a nitpick, but, you know, whatever. Okay, so this also messes up a little bit of the lore because I, I think it's, like, semi-implied that all that all the other ghosts can also leave, but if they can, they don't want to, and if they can't, then they can't. It's that simple. The ghost host ended up dying because he couldn't find a way to escape. And he was permanently tied to the Haunted Mansion. And that's part of the opening narration of the actual ride. Which brings you a chilling challenge to find a way out. Uh, this corridor has no rooms and no doors. No no windows. Excuse me, no rooms. The, the point I'm trying to make is that, if I'm not mistaken, the first time they see Hattie is outside the house. But Hattie can't leave. I'm sorry, Hattie is the hatbox ghost, if that wasn't clear. Hattie cannot leave the house. He's he's always in the attic. He was only ever seen in the attic. And that's usually because of his ties to Constance Hatchaway, who is also in the attic. And she's in the attic because that's where she keeps all of her mementos of her husbands and whatnot. But Hattie is tied to Constance, and Constance is tied to Hattie, and they're both tied to the attic and they don't leave. The only ones that were known to leave were the hitchhiking ghosts, Phineas, Ezra, and Gus. So if Hattie can leave the house, wh where do the rules apply? Why, why is Hattie able to leave the house? And why is it not the hitchhiking ghosts? Again, all of this seems nitpicky, but th it's very clear that there is at least some sort of lore or rules established to the original ride. And I understand taking creative liberties for an adaptation, but this is... It's weird. Ah, <laughs> uh, goodness. I don't... I don't know exactly how to put it into words. Like, you're... You, you have things that were already set up for you, and you decide to change it. Even though it would have been so much arguably better, but so much easier to just take that story and work with it. Instead of not even tweaking, just like putting putting an axe to it, puncturing it until it's misshapen and doesn't make sense anymore. On that note, why is the Hatbox Ghost the main villain? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever there are so many other ghosts that have more power over him now i i read that hattie is supposed to be named alistair crump in this version at disney world um the caretaker's name is silas crump and in a 1990s script for a different Haunted Mansion movie, Leota was called Madame Leota Crumb. So I see the story there. I don't know if they're going to do anything with it. If, if they're not going to do anything with like those other versions, then what's even the point? Why are you guys so obsessed with Crump? But I see the story. I, I kind of see what they were trying to do there. But if they don't go in the direction that I think they're going in, then I don't see the point. But Hattie is not hostile. He 
He was never meant to be hostile. He's just there to freak you out. He smiles and then his head appears in his hat box. And that's just to scare you. That he's he's not going to attack you or anything. He never did such a thing before. It was never implied that he would do such a thing. I mean, you could argue in the version where he was an accomplice to Constance instead of one of her husbands. I can kind of understand a little bit, but still, he was never hostile. Like, what it... What what is Hattie gonna do? What is he gonna do? Is he gonna put his head in a hat box and then show it off to you? What is what is he gonna do? He, he's never hostile. That doesn't make sense to me. And along with that, I said this before, there are so many other ghosts that are more powerful than him. Madame Leota, she summons the spirits of the house. Already more powerful than Hattie. Hattie never did such a thing. Ghost Toast, he guides you through the house. He tells you what's going on. He informs you. And he's the host of the house. Already having more power than Hattie. In one version of the Haunted Mansion, the Ghost Toast actually killed the Hatbox Ghost. He has more power over Hattie. The Hitchhikers can actually leave the house and are known... And are known for following you home until you return. They want you to come back, so they follow you home. That's why they're hitchhiking ghosts. And you see them at the end of the ride, and there is a little effect where they're sitting in the doom buggy with you because they're trying to taunt you. They also want you to come back. They have 999 happy hunts, but there's room for a 1,000. Constance Hatchaway. Again, she is a murderer. She killed all of her husbands. In one version, the hatbox ghost is, or at least one interpretation, Hattie helped her kill the husbands. And then she killed him. In another, in fact, in the earliest version of the Haunted Mansion, the hatbox ghost was actually, before Constance Hatchaway was the bride. The bride was just the bride. Hattie was her groom. It is implied that that is still the same with Constance Hatchaway, But whether or not Hattie is a romantic partner of Constance, she still killed him. So she still has power over him. So there are there are like at least four different ghosts that have more power over Hattie than Hattie does over them. And yet I'm supposed to believe that Hattie is the main villain, that he is the most powerful, the worst ghost of them all. Excuse you. I brushed up on my Haunted Mansion lore. Don't give me that bull. (laughs) Then we got humor. The humor is not ringing well for me. And this also leads into the tone, which is just very disappointing. We got the summoning of Lanham Leota. And she says, I can tell you what happened, but it'll cost you $3. I know I didn't say it the way she said it, but that is meant to be a joke. And you throw that in with someone that is usually considered menacing 90% of the time is considered menacing in the Haunted Mansion lore. And you expect me to take this movie seriously? There was also the sketch, um, which is like, wow, you did that just now? You want to know what would be more fun? Drawing him with skin. The the guy grabbing the axe and saying, and like everybody pointing out that that's not going to hurt them. And he's just like, they're going to be deader. And then... This mansion is unhinged. I saw that in like a 15 second trailer. And I'm just, I see that people, that that is appealing to some people, but it's not appealing to me. And maybe I'm, I just, 
my humor has regressed so much that I only laugh at the stupidest things ever or something like that. But it's implied that this that this series is supposed to be a little bit serious with a bit of dark humor. I said series, I meant movie. But these jokes are not ringing well with me. I think obviously by the way I was <laughs> talking about them. Again, I know it's appealing to some people, but because of that, I just I can't tell who it's for. Like, it feels like it's for the fans, but I don't even know what the fans' humor is like because the humor is just not working well for me. It's so bad. I'm sure it'll find an audience or whatnot because, again, there are a lot of people who seem to really enjoy the trailers. But the story of the Haunted Mansion is not exactly the most clear, but it is definitely the most devastating. It is possibly Disney's most morbid story to date, even if none of it is canon. But the implications, especially since you see the corpse of the ghost host at the beginning of the ride, the the killing of the Hatbox ghost, who Constance Hatchaway is, the hitchhikers, the caretaker and his dog... The riot's not scary, but it is definitely devastating once you pick up all the pieces. And for a ride that is just so mature, it needs a mature story. This humor is just not ringing well with me. And I can accept a dark comedy, but this is... This is just... I'm calling it dry even though the tone is not even dry humor. It's tasting dry to me. It's like you want to eat a chocolate chip cookie, but you're getting a saltine cracker instead. I don't know if I'm going to give this movie a chance, but for right now, as I keep saying... It's not ringing well for me. I'm having multiple problems with it, and maybe it's because I'm too obsessed with with the multiple versions and stories of this, but God, okay, you know what, whatever. Moving on. So, it's been a while since I've seen Ruby Gilman in the Teenage Kraken. It's no longer in theaters anymore, but um, I did want to talk about it. Because I felt like there was a lot of potential there and it was just not ringing well. I don't think it's the worst movie of all time, but it's definitely not my favorite. I'll talk about, I'll talk a little bit about what I like right now. Chelsea is the mermaid. Ruby is the kraken, obviously. They had a lot of interactions within the movie and it was definitely the best part of the movie. I enjoyed every second they were on screen together. Almost every second. I really liked it. Their interactions felt so genuine, despite the fact that Chelsea was a manipulator, and it just felt so sweet. It was genuinely really good. You could, you could definitely, it felt like an actual blossoming friendship, and I really like that they put so much time and care into that because they were the central focus of the movie. The character design and modeling was really good. It was definitely a unique, a more unique art style. I really liked the way um, uh, the Gilmans look. The giant Kraken designs were amazing. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. The water, uh, the water scenes were a lot of fun. I can't remember Chelsea's real name. 
but when she becomes her true form, they did not have to go that hard with the water effects, and they did. It looked really good. The voice work was really good. Lana Condor from To All the Boys I Loved Before was surprisingly really good for what I believe was her first voice acting role. I'm not completely sure if it's her first, but she is definitely new to voice acting, and she is doing a damn good job. I don't think there could have been a better casting choice than for Lana Condor. I'm really glad that she got this role. It was not it was not bad whatsoever. She's really good and I hope her career goes really far. I didn't know that she was branching out onto this. It's not that to all the boys um series is bad. I just, I don't want her to be completely associated with that because she's clearly talented as seen in Ruby Gilman. Like she, she's very good with a microphone. Acting and voice acting, while similar, are are different levels of difficulty and she showed that she's able to handle it. After seeing that, I'm just, I'm really hoping that she'll take it far and eventually people will separate her from To All the Boys. I know that that's the number one thing she's going to be associated with for right now, but hopefully in the future people will see Lana Condor as Lana Condor and not... Lara Jean from To All the Boys. Everybody else was really good as well, but I wanted to talk mostly about Lana Condor because I don't recall seeing her in a voice acting role before. I think that's it. Now for the things I didn't like, unfortunately. Um, the pacing was really not that good. You get a really fast-paced opening and then an exposition, and then you got things that lean into the exposition, which shows that we didn't need the exposition, and then we get weird overlapping scenes of, like, uh, the girls in the ocean and then the and then Ruby in high school and people preparing for prom. Oh, right, there's also a fake kraken hunting scene. It was so weird. I couldn't follow the timeline that well because nothing felt like it was meant to be there. I don't know, it felt like they needed more time to figure out how they wanted to lay out the story instead of whatever the heck that movie was trying to do the ending was lackluster i don't so like the third act ends with a plot twist that um chelsea was actually the original mermaid that ruby's mother quote-unquote defeated all those years ago and then like ruby feels defeated but then her uncle motivates her and then she's out and then we get a comedy bit And then Chelsea, I keep forgetting her real name, so I'm just going to call her Chelsea. Chelsea has the powers of the trident, and she's she's just not doing anything with it and then her mother and her ruby's mother and grandmother are out there just fighting and then ruby makes a suggestion and then she's just like i'm a mathlete and then they defeat her and chelsea's back to her teenage self in a cage and ruby suddenly has a dress for prom and then Connor asks her out and she makes up with her friends which I have so many notes on that um I I'm just giving a basic summary of the third act at this point it was just okay it felt it felt like it could have been better it felt like this epic final battle didn't really feel epic it just 
Like, the stakes were so low, considering the fact that Chelsea was not even doing doing anything at the end. There's a lot of pop songs in this movie, which, I mean, it's fine. I've seen movies that incorporated pop songs into their soundtrack and have it play in the background. The problem with Ruby Gilman is that it's not doing it in a way to enhance the scene. It feels like it's doing it in a way to convince children to convince their parents to buy the soundtrack on iTunes or a physical copy if children are still into physical copies of CDs. I know I am, but I'm old, so... Ruby's friends are horrible. Like, they're not the worst people in the world, but to me, it doesn't feel like they actually come off as people that care about Ruby. It it feels like if Ruby had a conflict in the sense, and I mean, like, that's kind of what's been shown. It, it feels like if Ruby needed the support of her friends, they would ditch her for the sake of their own fun or whatever. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I have I have notes on almost everything that they did. So, Ruby has strict parents. They know this and they made a pact to always stick together so that Ruby doesn't have to feel left out. And so she was planning on asking her mom to take her to prom and she had like this entire essay going on. They had a plan A and a plan B for that. And so she's on the phone with them after she got rejected. And her friends are just like, well, sorry, we changed our plans. See, I got asked out and and we're going out with each other. And they decided to change their plans before they even confirmed that Ruby was even able to go to prom. So they're breaking a promise that they made a long time ago and they thought that Ruby would just be okay with it. Or at least it felt like they thought that Ruby would just be okay with it. The two goth characters, they're not exactly goth, but I'm just calling them that, deny their interest in each other until the end of the film. It probably felt like they wanted to develop a story there, but it's honestly just so unnecessary. And when you think about it, it's just like, if they were friends for such a long time, why would they deny their interest in each other? Why wouldn't they just be honest with each other? I don't know. I never had a crush on my friends. I never um, felt romantically interested in my friends. But I feel like if you are, if you're close with your friends and you are romantically interested in them and that's mutual why would you deny the interest? She had at least one anxiety attack in the movie and they didn't really do anything about that. From my understanding, Ruby is a character that would have um, panic attacks regularly and I would assume that her friends at, at least witnessed it once before the events of the movie. So when she's having one in public, why didn't they do anything about it? Ruby didn't know about one of her friend's social medias. That seems like a small thing, but considering the fact that they're young, I'm surprised that she didn't know about it. Like, why wouldn't she? And she also knows about video editing and whatnot, and she's supposed to be really close with her friends. So why didn't she know about her friend's social media until it was convenient for the plot? And then this one really bothered me. When she agrees to go to prom and ask out her crush, she shows them the way that she's going to ask him out, 
And they told her not to do that because it's so simple or we're not or whatnot. But the the thing is, the way she was going to ask him out was through a math equation. Like, she flaunts that she is a mathlete. That is something that's unique to her. And it's it's clearly obvious very early on that Connor likes Ruby back. It's a mutual romantic interest in each other. If Connor likes Ruby for being Ruby, as far as I'm aware, why would they think she's she shouldn't ask him out in a way that's unique to her? And they said, well, prom is it's the biggest event of the year. But Ruby says that prom is not that big of a deal. Um, She only wanted to go because everybody else was going. Connor thinks it's not that big of a deal. But if they were going to go to prom, they wanted to go with each other. They're on the same wavelength with each other. So if they're supposed to understand Ruby, why didn't they let her ask him out in a way that was unique to her? Especially since Connor asked her out in the very same way that she was told not to ask him out at the end of the movie. If they truly are her friends and they truly understand her, why would they reject her like that? Her friends just don't seem like good people to me or good friends whatsoever. So as I'm watching the movie, I'm just like, why should I feel bad that they're being left out or that Ruby is not paying more attention to them if they weren't really being the best of friends to her? And friends don't really owe you anything, but it's just, there's so many layers to the to their friendship that's just not being applied there properly. They don't come off as friends, they come off as people who trust each other. And so, uh, along with that, um, Ruby keeps flaunting that she is a mathlete, she is a tutor for her crush, she wanted to ask him out with a math equation... And she come she comes up with a solution to the final battle with mathematics. She she said that she's a mathlete at least like five times within the movie, and yet we never see her with the mathletes. We never see her doing anything mathlete related, mathletics. I don't know if that's what it's called. So I'm thinking about it. If her being a mathlete is so important to her and so important that she keeps flaunting it at every single nook and cranny, why not have her friends be mathletes? Because at least then it would make a little bit more sense. They would understand her the way she not so honestly tried to ask out Connor when it goes so when it goes south the same way, it could go south a different way. But at least her friends would actually feel like her friends in the moments that we're supposed to feel bad that her friends um, aren't hanging out with Ruby as much will make more sense because they're mathletes, she's a mathlete, and that means they hang out a lot and they get along with each other a lot. I mean, not all clubs, not all groups of people that are in school activities will get along with each other, but if you're going to a place constantly, you're bound to make at least one friend. So if she's an outcast with a lot of friends and she is a mathlete that she, and she's so proud of it that she flaunts it constantly, why weren't her friends mathletes? So many things could have been fixed if her friends were just mathletes. 
All right, so this is the final thing I have to say on it. And this is something I liked, but it ended up ruining the entire movie. At the beginning, we get this really flashy YouTube video style of editing. And it was meant to be narration and a presentation to her mom. But it felt like it was a reflection of Ruby's personality. It was a great, fast paced way to introduce the story and it was a lot of fun and it was very unique to the movie or at least unique to that very moment and then we never see that again that's the problem with it considering the fact that this movie is centered around technology so much it feels like it would have been better if they leaned more towards that editing style instead of just the editing style that they decided to go with for majority of the movie because that would have made the movie more unique and it would make certain scenes like showing a live stream cam or um, social media posts or whatnot, and the opening exposition less jarring because all of that stuff is so different from the rest of the movie and they only last for like at least a minute each. But if the entire movie was in that YouTube video editing style that reflected Ruby's personality, it felt like it would have been more consistent, a lot more fun, and a lot more interesting. I mean, that's not to say that the movie wasn't visually interesting, but I feel like if they leaned more towards the editing style that they did in the beginning of the movie, it would have been better because it was just so much more fun. The general thought that I have on this movie is that there was so much there. There was so much that could have been done. It was clear that there was some form of passion, but it just wasn't being executed the way it should have. There were just so many issues, and the things that I like end up ruining other moments in the movie, and it just doesn't make sense whatsoever. And it feels like if they needed more time to figure out what they wanted and what they didn't want. It feels, it's completed, but it feels half-baked. There are some things that didn't need to be there. There are some things that needed more time. And it feels like if they actually had the time to do what they wanted to do, this movie could have been one of the greats. I don't know, maybe it'll be a cult classic in the future. Maybe in the future people will review it and talk about how great or horrible this movie was. We'll see. We'll see. Right now, for the people that's seen it, it's very mixed in reviews. But Ruby Gilman had so much going for it. I love these slice of I love these coming of age stories and it feels like it just it was aiming for the right spots but it missed it by like a centimeter and if it could just recenter its aim and hit again it could have been great I just wish it was better the last thing I'm going to talk about in the last movie I have seen recently was Nimona I saw it with my brother about a week or two ago and You know, I really enjoyed it. I just don't think it was amazing. I haven't seen many other reviews on Nimona, but from the thumbnails and whatnot, it's it's just like, oh my god, this is like the greatest thing of all time. And I'm just like, it it was good, but I don't think it was the greatest thing of all time. (laughs) It was not bad by any any means. I enjoyed it a lot more than Ruby Gilman. 
I think the story was developed really well. It is by no means something that I'm new to. I think that's the reason why I didn't think this movie was as great as from what I'm seeing everybody's saying it is because tv tropes labels labels this as what measure is a human and then sometimes humans are the real monsters i am not new to those stories i have seen it before and so when i saw that pneumonia was a humans are the real monsters what measure is a human um story i'm just like oh okay not anything new and so i wasn't super impressed by the story i again i thought it was executed really well i'm just like oh well nothing new here let me talk a little bit about what i liked it had a lot of good comedy beats i found myself laughing with my brother from time to time now he was laughing at different times than i was laughing because we have different um interest in comedy we don't exactly like the same type of comedy but there were moments where we were both laughing at the same time uh the voice work was really good. Chloe Grace Mortez, the voice of Numono, um, she's not new to voice acting whatsoever, but her voice work has definitely brought the character to life. And I enjoyed seeing Nimona on screen. She was definitely animated very well and she was very fun to watch. But it definitely feels like most of this character would be dead without Chloe Grace Mortez. So I don't think there could have been a better choice. I mean, her voice was a little bit familiar. I thought it was Erica Lindbeck for a second. Not that Erica Lindbeck is bad. Don't don't twist my words. But she was really good. That's, <laughs> and I mean, everybody else was really good as well, but I think the number one thing I needed to point out was Chloe Grace Mortez. She was phenomenal in this movie. Okay, so there's queer stuff in this movie, and it's not bad. Um, I don't think it's confirmed, but Nimona definitely relates to a lot of trans people. I don't see it as much, but I definitely understand why people would view her character that way and why and why trans people would identify with Nimona. I think that's really great. And Nimona is definitely such a wonderful character. So, I mean, I don't think it's just trans people. I'm sure that so many other people can relate to Nimona. I think she's great. I'm really happy that there's so many people that can enjoy her. Besides the point, Ballister and Ambrosius are very much in love. It was obvious from the very beginning that they love each other. They had a kiss at the end of the movie. They said that they love each other multiple times in the movie. And I think they're officially dating by the end. And the thing about it is that it was so casual. If Ambrosius and Ballister was written as a straight romance, literally nothing would be changed. Like, one of their genders would be different, but that's it. And that is great, especially since this film is, if I'm not mistaken, for kids. It might not be for kids. It might be for young adults. I'm... I'm not completely sure. Although I definitely see why kids would be interested in the movie. But it's good representation. They are treated the same way a heterosexual couple would be treated. And that is perfect. There is nothing jarring about it whatsoever unless you're homophobic. (laughs) And for stories like these in the future, that's what it should be all the time. Just normal. Just okay just 
there. And this is a great step forward for representation. So I'm really glad we got a relationship like Ambrosius and Ballister on the screen. Okay, the ending was really sweet. The entire third act was so sweet. And the ending, while it didn't make me cry, definitely clenched my heart and made my eyes heavy. So good job. Good job. (laughs) Okay, I just have some small things to say about my problems with it. They're kind of nitpicky, but... I want to I want to talk about them anyway. The art style is fine. It's just disappointing. There's nothing wrong with the art style. It definitely works for the movie. But when you look at the original graphic novel, I didn't read the graphic novel, but I've seen pictures. If you look at the original graphic novel, it's so much more unique and the style is a lot of fun and definitely not something you'd see on the screen before. And I kind of wish that got translated onto the screen instead of, it's gonna sound mean, but it's kind of generic CGI modeling. Cause like we, we seen this sort of style with Disney a lot. And I think that's because Disney originally worked on the movie, but still I, I kind of wish that the art style reflected more of the of the graphic novel than a lot of the modern styles that we're seeing today. Settings got old really quickly. <laughs> Let me explain. We start this we start the movie at the castle and then we're at the secret base and then we're at the castle and then we're at the secret base and then we're in the city and then we're at the castle. Or the secret base. But either way, we're going to end up back at the secret base. And then we're at the castle. And then we're at the secret base. City again. Secret base. The city. My issues. (laughs) It got old really quickly. It got boring really quickly. I get it. It's a bit more of domestic storytelling. But I just... I got so bored. Because they kept doing the same thing over and over again and i'm just like okay when when are we gonna be done final thing there's this really pivotal scene where nimona is pretending to be ambrosius to confront the director and the director ends up stabbing nimona thinking it's ambrosius and ballister records the whole thing and then he uploads it online anonymously and that put some evidence against the director. But then the director was able to very easily convince everyone that Nimona was actually the director in that video, and that bleeds into the third act. But it's just, all of it is so weird because you should be able to hear her. It depends on when they started recording it, but why didn't they record the whole thing? Um, Why did they only record the director? And why can't we hear Nimona as Ambrosius in the video? It's very important, but considering the way it's incorporated, it's just a little bit weird because wouldn't people be able to pinpoint certain things like who is the night that they stab the harder you think about it the more the story gets confused other than that the movie is really good okay that's all i have to say for now 
If you are listening on a platform to comment on, feel free to tell me your thoughts if you have any. Next episode, I plan to review all episodes of Kizazimoto, so please keep an eye out. If you want to support me, you can buy me a coffee. My ID is DM Ramos, all one word. Again, DM Ramos, all one word. Once again, my name is Daisy Mercedes Ramos. I call myself an artist, and thank you for indulging in my videocracy. All right, let's cut the tape.